Now take a Bible in hand. If you're using the PURAC, you want to turn to page 883. If you're using one of the URC Bibles there in the PURAC in front of you, um, we'll look at Luke chapter 23. We won't look at the entirety of the chapter. Our uh, consideration will stick to verses 6 through 16, but in a moment here, we'll actually begin with our reading in verse 1 this morning. So Luke chapter 23 uh, through uh, verse 1 through verse 16. We come to uh, consider the third interrogation here at the end of Jesus' life that Jesus is taken through. The third one in Luke's gospel. This third one, the one with Herod is only in Luke's gospel. And that's been our Sunday morning sermon series this summer. Has been looking at selections from Luke's gospel that are unique to Luke's gospel. That teaches something about the grace of God that Luke wanted us to see. And so through his eyewitness uh, research and reporting and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us some parables and some uh, stories of Jesus encountering sinners and his response and what he has to say. And here with Herod, the Tetrarch is only found at the end of Luke's gospel. Uh, Let me remind you kind of the sequence of events in Jesus' life. Uh, If you remember last week, uh, we considered Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was coming close to this day, that encounter with Zacchaeus. Uh, at the end of the Zacchaeus story, it says that Jesus was near to Jerusalem. He had been on a journey to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel beginning in chapter 9, where it says that he set his face for Jerusalem. And what that means is that Jesus knew that there in Jerusalem awaited a cross for him. And he was determined that he would die on the cross, completing the task given to him by his father. And to seek and to save the lost, it was required that he would be crucified. So Jesus now, here in Luke chapter 23, has made it to Jerusalem. It's the morning of what we now call Good Friday. The night before, he's been betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, tried by the Jewish council. Jewish council has charged him with blasphemy which would be a capital crime under Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 24. But under Roman occupation, the Jewish council couldn't legally on their own execute Jesus for this capital crime as they saw it, falsely accusing him of blasphemy. They need a Roman governor to do that. So on Friday morning, they bring him to be tried by the Roman governor Pilate. And the charges go from religious grounds to political ones. They charge him with inciting an insurrection. They charge him with forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. They charge him for being the Christ, claiming to be a king. Well, Pilate's initial verdict is that this man is not guilty. We'll read it. He says he's, he's innocent. But the Jewish leaders press. And Pilate, having learned that this man is from Galilee, knows that Herod, the governor, the tetrarch of Galilee, is in Jerusalem for the Passover, so he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, at that point, before we read, it'd be helpful to remind us, which Herod are we talking about? There's five Herods in the New Testament. Um, So, which is the one here in Luke chapter 23? Well, this is Herod Antipas. 
He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was deemed the king of Israel, but he ruled under Roman authority. His rule ended in uh, 4 BC. And at that time, Caesar Augustus named his four sons as rulers in his place. Neither of those sons, none of those Herods received the title king of the Jews like their father Herod the Great had. This is Herod Antipas, who was made ruler of Galilee and Perea. He is the Herod of Jesus' public ministry, and that is whom Jesus stands before here in our section of Scripture this morning. Before we hear it read, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, you inspired this testimony recorded by Luke of your son. And it was recorded, preserved, translated in your providence for our hearing and for our learning. So we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures would be at work among us today, giving us understanding that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we might feed upon Christ, the very bread of life, and hang on your every word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. During the last half of the 16th century, the Protestant Henry Navarre ascended to the throne of France. And by 1592, he basically had the whole 
country under his reign everywhere but Paris. And Paris was the most important city in France, and Paris was under Roman Catholic control. So in 1593, King Henry Navarre metaphorically crossed the Tiber River and converted to the Church of Rome. His explanation, his infamous explanation, Paris is well worth a mass. Paris is well worth a mass. Political expediency, abandoning principles for power. We see something of like that here in Jesus' final hours. How does Jesus go from standing before Pilate Friday morning to dying on a cross that afternoon? Well, knowing the whole story, we know it's according to God's perfect triune, God's plan, predestined, foreordained. From a human perspective, there is a whole lot of political expediency going on among wicked men. According to Jewish records, the historian Josephus, Pilate was a harsh governor with a history of offending Jewish culture and religious sensibilities. As the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to him, he recognizes that the charges are false. But Pilate needs to avoid any political missteps. If there's a riot during the Passover, he knows that Rome will hold him accountable. So he ends up, against his correct and better judgment, appeasing the Jewish religious leaders. It was politically expedient for him to go along with their plot and plan. And then Pilate pulls Herod into the corrupt and messy politics of that day. And both men very quickly demonstrate that they are selfish, unprincipled, unjust rulers. Herod is a partner in the political expediency. Not being a a particular, uh, on good terms with the Jewish religious leaders. He sees an opportunity to appease them and against his correct and better judgment, hands Jesus over as well. Now in Herod, it's not just political expediency that we see. We get a glimpse into a very, very troubled man. There's a lot of bad actors that day, and it's been said that Herod is the most contemptible of all characters on the stage of Good Friday. Now, up to this point, Herod and Jesus haven't met, but they have a history. Herod has heard of Jesus' ministry and the miracles that he had performed in his region. And in Luke chapter 9, Herod was seeking to see Jesus. But then later, just a couple chapters later in the narrative story in chapter 13, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they warn him saying that Herod wants to kill you and is seeking to take your life. Herod was still seeking Jesus, but now just not wanting to see him, wanting to kill him. And you may recall Jesus' response in Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Jesus knew the day would come when he would face the fox. It's, it's assessing Herod's character, his deceptive, untrustworthy, not worthy of his position. Jesus knew 
he would face Herod. So here at the end, we have the fox and the king of kings face to face. In this encounter between Jesus and Herod, there's a couple things to see. Most importantly, there is a severe warning for the unrepentant. And there is hope for those who bow the knee to King Jesus. We'll consider verses 6 through 16 in three sections. In verses 6 through 9, the terrifying silence of Jesus. In verses 10 through 11, the cruelty endured by Jesus. And then in verses 13 through 16, the truth about Jesus, undenied. The terrifying silence. Why does Pilate send Jesus to Herod? Well, it could be that Pilate recognizes the mess on his hands and he's looking for someone else to take responsibility. Or we see in the text that Pilate and Herod weren't necessarily on good terms. So it wasn't just that Pilate had issues with the religious leaders of the Jews. He also had some contention, some enmity, is what the text says, between him and Herod. And he knows Herod is in town from Jerusalem and he knows that this man is from his region. And so in order to maybe build a political bridge, he sees an opportunity to reach out to Herod for some counsel. Herod, how would you handle this case? And it's, it's somewhat of a, a, a smart move by Pilate trying to defer here and seek advice. He, he knew that Herod was an ally to Rome. Herod knew where his power came from. And so Herod could help him access if Jesus was actually a threat to Rome in any way. He also knew that Herod, though not a, a descendant of the Jews, a descendant of the Edomites, had more ties with the Jews and through marriage had more connections in his family tree with the Jews that he understood Judaism better than Pilate did. And so as the religious leaders come and say, this man claims to be the Christ, that means he's claiming to be a king. And we know that you believe there's no king but Caesar. He knows that Herod could help him discern through that whether or not this is an actual threat. And quite simply, Herod was from Galilee. And this man is a Galilean. And the Jews are claiming that this man has stirred up all kind of trouble, beginning from Galilee to Judea. And so certainly if there's any real trouble here that is prosecutable, Herod would know about it. His Pilate doesn't see any reasons. And then Herod steps on the scene. And in verse 8, did you notice there? Look back there. What does it tell us about Herod? Well, Herod wanted to see Jesus. That verb see in one form or another is used three times there. When he saw him, he desired to see him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was curious Luke wants us to see that Herod was excited to see Jesus on that Friday morning. You know, on this side of the pulpit, sometimes there's a message for the preacher, a reminder in the Protestant church's tradition. And many of you have heard of this. Um, it would say, sir, we would see Jesus. And it's meant to be a reminder to the preacher. It's a quote from John 12, 21 the Greeks who come to Philip and they want to hear from Jesus. And it's supposed to be, as you step into the pulpit, give the people Jesus. Let them see Jesus. Charles Spurgeon tells of a story that one time a preacher opened up the pulpit Bible and someone had left him that note there in the Bible. Sir, we would see Jesus. 
And we remember from last week, if you were here, you go back and, and read it, that in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus, the infamous sinner and tax collector, he desired to see Jesus. Is Herod the same? Is he in the same boat? Is he the one seeking like those Greeks? Is he like Zacchaeus seeking to see Jesus? No, his seeking is a different sort of seeking. How do we know that? Well, it says that he wants to see a sign from Jesus. He wants to see a miracle of some sort. And in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said it's an evil generation that seeks a sign. Let me remind you that signs are problematic. Many of those who don't believe and who don't believe the scriptures, who don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah, the one sent from God, they say, I just don't have enough evidence. If there was a sign, then I would believe. But signs are problematic. We see it in the scripture that signs don't always turn out the way people think they will. Moses provided plenty of signs for Pharaoh, and yet it wasn't the signs that softened Pharaoh's hardened heart. His heart remained hard in the face of many signs. His own magicians offering counter signs. There being 10 signs, and yet still Pharaoh, because of the hardness of his heart, pursues the Israelites into the Red Sea himself. See, the problem with signs is that signs must be interpreted. And unless the heart has been born again and been given eyes to see, then our fallen minds will give the wrong interpretation to the signs. Jesus did provide signs of his Messiahship, but they were always accompanied by his word to confirm and explain. And that is the pattern of scripture, that unless you have the interpretive word for the sign, then you'll miss it, leaning on your own understanding and comprehension of the sign. Because just think about it, all of creation speaks of the glory of God. The heavens declare the majesty of God, Psalm 19 says. And so everyone is surrounded by enough signs and enough evidence to believe, and yet many don't. If you deny the signs all around you, you'll deny a special sign too. But what if Jesus was to perform such a miracle in Herod's presence that day? What if he was to perform one to demonstrate that he was the Messiah? Well, Herod would find himself in quite the pickle because Herod had killed Jesus' cousin, the prophet who prepared the way for the Messiah, the one sent from God to prepare the way for Jesus. And so if Jesus then confirms that he is the one who John the Baptist says he was, Herod, what does this sign leave him? Well, this sign leaves him in position that now he, just like in chapter 13, he needs to seek Jesus' death. He needs to see him condemned. Jesus becomes a bigger problem if he is actually the Messiah. And he is. But there is no sign. There is no miracle. And then there's no reply. There's not even one peep from Jesus to Herod. Was it say there in the text that after not getting a sign, Herod brought all of his questions to him? Question after question after question. And Jesus is quiet, not replying to one of his questions. Now, Jesus never refuses a real seeker. 
And all those who really genuinely seek Jesus, we come with impure motives and the Lord has to straighten out all kinds of things in our hearts and minds and the very reason that we're seeking Jesus. And we learn that if any of us are sincere seekers, it's because the Spirit has been doing a work in our life and he is showing us the glory and beauty of Christ. Jesus will never refuse a real seeker. He said, my sheep hear my voice. But Herod is not one of the sheep. Herod is not a sincere seeker. No, these questions are the one of a cruel cynic. And we see that by Herod's response. As soon as Jesus does not acquiesce to his request, as soon as he does not go along with Herod's program, Herod begins to mock and ridicule Jesus. We see the powerful effect of Jesus' non-actions. He's creating a visual and acoustic vacuum there before Herod. The awkward, terrifying silence showing Herod his spiritual blindness and deafness. How did Herod get to this point? Remember that Herod, as I just said, imprisoned John the Baptist. Herod was responsible for John the Baptist's death How'd that come about? Well, Herod Antipas had a thing for his brother's wife, his brother Philip, Herodias. There's all kind of Herods and Herodias all over the New Testament. And he's, he's interested and infatuated with his brother's wife. And so they elope. Herodias leaves Philip for Herod Antipas. And she brings with her into the marriage her her daughter Salome, which would be Herod's stepdaughter. And John didn't let Herod get away from it. In his public preaching ministry, he pointed out to all who would listen the sins of Herod, particularly taking his brother's wife. And Herodias and Herod did not like this. But Mark in his gospel has an interesting commentary on what was going on between John the Baptist and Herod. He said, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet, and this is strange, not what we would expect, he heard him gladly. John was calling out his sin, and yet there was something he still liked to listen to his sermons. Herod was secretly downloading the John the Baptist podcast. He's perplexed. He heard him gladly. He's protecting him and keeping him safe. He did so for a while. But after he imprisoned him, Herod threw a party. And in the, the height of the revelry, he invites his stepdaughter to come and dance before the guest. And after this exhibition, intoxicated with drink and intoxicated by her dance, he offers her anything she wants, up to half his kingdom. And she goes to her mother, and her mother says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so, Herod delivers the head of John the Baptist. You might say, who was his favorite preacher. Now, 
we see the Herod we're dealing with. Now we see why his curiosity is denied. John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus and he had not repented when Jesus preached. He wouldn't repent when John preached. Herod, having tasted the word of God in the ministry of John, ended up spitting it out. And it would seem that by Jesus' terrifying silence, this man has reached the point of no repentance. Could this be a biblical illustration of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's solemn. It's terrifying. Each of us. It challenges us to be careful how we listen and respond to the Word of God. You hear it today. There's no guarantee that you'll hear it tomorrow. It may be that you will not hear it tomorrow because you don't know what awaits you later this day. You may meet your maker this evening. Or, almost even a more terrifying scenario, you may live decades and decades and decades never hearing the word of God, never having the opportunity to taste it and spit it out again. Oh, there's an urgency to faith and repentance. There's an urgency to repent of unbelief. There's an urgency to stop playing games with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because none of us want to find ourselves on the other side of the terrifying silence. If you hear his word today, do not harden your hearts. Behold, today might be the last time. Don't play games with Jesus. Then we see the cruelty endured by Jesus in verses 10 through 11. Herod is frustrated. The Jews are still whipped into a frenzy. The Jewish leaders have accompanied Jesus to Herod's interrogation, and they're seeking to continue to play the role of prosecutor. We see that in verse 10. The chief priest and the scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. So what does Herod do? Well, Herod responds in the most wicked way. And then in verse 11, and Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back the pilot. Look at the cruelty of the treatment. He's unwilling to condemn him to death, and yet he ridicules him. He's unwilling to go as far as to condemn an innocent man again, but it's just as bad what's revealed about Herod's heart. Here, there are three participles in the Greek there in verse 11. They're treating with contempt. They're mocking. They're arraying him. It's Herod and his troops. But in the Greek, those participles are all in the singular. Luke is telling the story in such a way that among the mockers, Herod is the chief mocker. Think about it. He goes within just a matter of minutes from asking Jesus for a sign, asking Jesus his questions 
to mocking him. His heart revealed. So they dress him up in splendid clothes. It's the mockery of saying, this man claims to be a king, the Christ. Look at this poor peasant. Ha, look at him. They're mocking him, maybe hoping to provoke Jesus, that he might react in such a way that there would be something that they could pin on him to condemn him. But Jesus doesn't react. Herod is not in control. Jesus is in control. And so Herod sends him back, arrayed in this clothing, sending Pilate the message. This man might claim to be a king, but he's harmless. Nothing to worry about this powerless peasant king. Jesus, the political pawn being sent back and forth. Both Pilate and Herod, for the most part, are too coward to condemn an outright. But the pressure of the Jewish leaders is getting to them. And so, in order to appease the Jewish leaders, Herod is willing to lead the mockery of Jesus. It's politically expedient to him to get on the anti-Jesus bus. Dear believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you read this, it should stir up so many different things in your heart. Probably some righteous anger and indignation towards the crowd that day. We must remember that apart from God's saving grace to us, we would have been there among the scoffers. We would have been those who later in chapter 23 who would have too been crying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. That would have been you and I. Let's not deceive ourselves. But for the grace of God, that's who we would be. We would be among the mockers. Dear believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, see the torment that your Savior endured on your behalf. See the contempt that he bore. It is a full suffering that our Savior suffered in our place. That he suffered all physical pain possible and the excruciating death of crucifixion. Dying by asphyxiation, having been nailed to a cross. But even more so, there are greater torments in soul that he will experience on our behalf as the wrath of God has poured out him on the cross in our place. But with those torments of soul, to his very soul, is this torment, this contempt, this mockery that he endured on our behalf. Here he is, abused by wicked men, degraded over and over and over again leading up to his cross. To those who have suffered much by the hands of others and by the words of others, here is a Savior who has traveled the road that you have known and the road that you may be on right now. Here is the one who has suffered the worst abuse that the world has had to offer. And he, part of the reason he did so was so that he could be the perfect high priest that you and I need. So that he could be the one that you can come to and bring your pain. And he says, I've been there. I've seen the worst that men have to offer. 
and I overcame it. I bore it, and I'm a conqueror over it. Little kids, sometimes friends or other people will, will say things that are hurtful, that really hurt your feelings really bad. Sometimes the people that we want to say good things about us sometimes say the most hurtful things too. Parents or teachers or coaches or other authorities. What do you do with that pain, that real hurt? Well, you, you tell someone you can trust as soon as possible, but you know who you can trust most of all is Jesus. And he can come to you and say, I know what it's like to really have your feelings hurt. I know what that's like. Come to me. Let me walk with you. There's an old saying that hurt people hurt people. That those who receive harm then in turn end up doing the very thing that they hate and despise to others. But when we come to Christ, the cycle of pain and hurt is broken by the power of his resurrection and as we walk with the high priest who knows our every pain and sorrow and grief. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, is our Savior. There's so many today who are seeking to advocate for the victim, seeking to speak up for those who've been harmed by those in power. And as Christians, we seek the prosecution of, of evil men. But also we know that that can only do so much for the victim. But in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who knows pain and who can heal it and who can enter into it genuinely and truly and walk with us. In the power of his resurrection, we get a taste of wholeness that is to come and he sustains us until we reach heaven and see him face to face and all tears are wiped away and there will be no more pain and sorrow. Consider, dear believer, remembering the cruelty endured by your Savior on your behalf. And lastly, in verses 13 through 16, see the truth about Jesus that is undenied. The truth undenied. As Luke is giving this account, there's two things he doesn't want you to miss that are very important. And he tells this story in such a way that you see the innocence of Jesus and you see his true identity. There's something about his character that is affirmed here, and there's something Christological about who he truly is that Luke paints in our picture here. And here's the amazing thing. Three times in Luke 23, Pilate says he's innocent. In verse 15, Herod, in all his mockery of Jesus, affirms Pilate's assessment and says there's nothing that he has done that has made him guilty of death. There is a clear verdict proclaimed throughout this encounter, making it very clear that here Jesus is a righteous and innocent sufferer. 
Setting the stage that there would, we would be certain that he is one going to the cross, not because of his sins, but for other reasons. And that here in the legal proceedings, declared innocent and yet condemned to the cross. It becomes a refrain of the apostles that they pick up on this and they point out the necessity of his innocence and the benefit for those who are trusting in Jesus. So the apostle Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, we are cleansed. 1 Peter 1.19 Luke doesn't want us to miss. He makes it obvious, telling us over and over, Look at the innocent, the innocent one. Behold him. Behold the suffering. Behold his going to the cross. Look at what he endured and what his innocent blood has accomplished. That those of us, each of us, stained by sin with a burden of guilt that we could not bear, he has borne it for us. Because it was not his own sin that could keep him on the cross. It had to be someone else's. It was his people's sin. Then we see the Christological claim that happens. And we get some help here. But Luke is setting us up to say that the Jews accused him of being the Christ, the king, and he is Christ, the king. See, the early church when they considered this account, Luke tells us that they saw this as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. There in Acts chapter 4, when the church is praying, they cite these events, the interrogation by Herod explicitly, as being a fulfillment of what the Lord was doing through his Messiah. Listen to Acts 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Here they're quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth, Herod, and the rulers, Pilate, were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here the early church, they said, this is Psalm 2, exactly what we should expect, that the Lord's Messiah will be the enemy of the governors of this world, and that they will try to oppose him. But they cannot thwart the plan of God. They cannot divert the plan of God. Herod has his purposes for sending Pilate back. Pilate has his purposes for eventually sending Jesus to the cross here and just in a matter of, of, of hours. None of it can stop God's purposes. Think about it. Herod 
and his mockery and contempt is confirming the prophecy of Psalm 2, showing that Jesus truly is the Christ, the one sent by God. Herod thinks he's exercising some power over Jesus, but it is Jesus who has all the power in the room as he stands silent looking at his mocker. And as the early church reflected on this passage, what did they draw from it? Well, here in Acts 4, what are they doing? They're, they're praying. Because some of the same religious leaders that have conspired against Jesus are now conspiring against the church and threatening them. Threatening them with their lives. And so what do they do? They consider these events. They consider Psalm 2. And they're praying, asking God for boldness. For boldness. And having seen Jesus' strength under fire, his silence before Herod, having seen all that he suffered cruelly at the hands of wicked men, and having been on this side of the resurrection, knowing that God's predestined plan for the Savior of the world could not be changed, altered by the wicked plans of men. In fact, the wicked plans of men serving his purposes, it does the same for us. It puts steel in our backbone and boldness. That as we are Christ's people in the world, we know that Christ is ruling and reigning and whatever the powers and governors and rulers of this world would threaten the church of Christ, that their malintent for us will not succeed. That Christ is the victor and that Christ's word is true in the face of the darkness and the face of the encroachment of evil upon God's very people. And that's what the church drove from it in Acts chapter 4. It's the boldness for the believer. And what's the purpose of the boldness? That they would continue to stand up and share the gospel. The hope of the world. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great Lord and our God, we see all, Heavenly Father, that you ordained in the suffering of your Son. And in him we see a willing sacrifice in our place. We see the one that we need. We pray that we wouldn't be like Herod, that we wouldn't just be intrigued with Jesus, but that we would be in love with him, devoted to him, that we may find in him the source of our life, our peace, our forgiveness, our righteousness, our holiness, our sanctification, all that we need. But we do not take it for granted that today we are sitting under the hearing of your word. And so we pray that we would go forth from here as those who are not only hearers, but doers, believing and practicing all that you would command and teach. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.